All right. Um, my name is Harrison, and if I haven't met you, I'm a pastor here at Hope Chapel. I'd love to, to meet you. Um, last week, we kicked off our preaching series on the book of Romans uh, with an intro sermon in which we saw through God's providence here in Scripture, we're receiving a letter. And this letter is most truly from Jesus to us. It's his words carrying his authority through his sent one, the Apostle Paul. That's how Jesus and Paul in the early church considered the words of the apostles and, and why we call this uh, God's word for us. It's addressed to the Roman church in the first century, which was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles uh, learning to live together. And this letter is also very much intended by Jesus for us today as uh, scripture. And the message uh, for us in this letter is God's gospel, we saw. Uh, it's news from God, news of a person, uh, God's son, and a major victory he has won. Uh, and then also the implications of him and his victory for us, the righteousness of God revealed through faith. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the sermon last week, it'd be good to go back and hear it just to know exactly what we're getting into here uh, for this book. So we're breaking Romans into four parts this year. The first section of the book focuses on justification, a theological ta term that asks how are we made right with God uh, relationally uh, given how much we violated his law and rebelled against him. Can we become accepted by God and how? And we ended last week scratching the surface of that answer, that Jesus makes us right with God through his victory. And that victory can be applied to us only through a thing called faith, and us collapsing onto Jesus fully. Even the ability to have that faith is given to us from God, and this is the best news for sinners. So we ended last week on a pretty, pretty high note. But now, um, surprisingly, the letter turns to seemingly elaborate on this good news. Notice the, the four at the beginning of this passage. Uh, Jesus through Paul is about to send you on a three-chapter, five-week tour of the depths of your sin. A five-week tour for us of the pervasiveness of your sin, the exact nature of your sin, the exact uh, badness of your sin, and the wrath of God being revealed already for it. The obvious question you might have is, I thought this was good news. I felt pretty good last week. Why such a long section on sin and wrath and judgment? I'm going to come back to this at the end, but think about it as we go through this passage. What is Jesus up to here? Why does he focus so much on sin when sharing the gospel? Now, uh, sin and judgment are understandably not the Bible's most popular doctrines. Um, they've been certainly mishandled and abused by churches in history, and they may have been used wrongly to spiritually abuse many of us in here. And for all of us, they can be scary to mention because of that misuse, and also uh, they just plainly don't sound like good news. We might feel like they are the black sheep doctrines uh, for us as Christians. If you're, if you're not a Christian in here, uh, we are nervous to talk to you about this stuff, all right? Sin uh, is often seen by those who are not Christians as maybe an innocent indulgence or a private personal action someone's taking to meet a real need that hurts no one, but someone religious is making a big deal about it, judging and shaming that person under the authority of God. Sin can be seen as someone imposing a narrow view of right and wrong on someone else. And judgment and hell can be seen as totally antithetical to unconditional love. Maybe that's something the God of the Old Testament might have liked, but not Jesus or who we think of him to be. 
And this has led a lot of Christians to think, wouldn't we be better off without these doctrines? Many people have intentionally stopped mentioning them, uh, removed them, uh, many things from the sin lists in the Bible as not being that bad at all, or at least not that serious to God. And, and many have become universalists, meaning that there's no judgment to be concerned about for us, they believe, despite the fact that Jesus talks about it a ton. The most well-known verse in the Bible in the United States used to be John 3.16, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A pretty good, most well-known verse, a summary of God's gospel. But now, uh, according to polls, it's Matthew 7, 1. Uh, Judge not lest you be judged. Otherwise, the verse that's misunderstood to mean, stop talking about what you think is my sin. Don't judge me. So it's understandably tempting for us as Christians to move away from those doctrines. And so we might could have skipped over Romans 1 through 3. Um, but in the next five weeks, I want to do just the opposite of that. I actually want to lean into these two doctrines to go deeper into them as Jesus is doing here through Paul. And I want to actually suggest that these are two of our best doctrines as Christians. What? I want to suggest that sin and judgment are doctrines not only that we should not be ashamed of, but perhaps even be proud of. Now, before you leave uh, the room, not proud of sin itself, okay, or proud of judgment itself, they're two terrifying and tragic realities, but proud of the doctrines given by Jesus that accurately explain our actual human condition. Doctrines that are therefore essentially helpful for both us and society in dealing with our condition together. Certainly far more helpful than the alternatives cultures have tried to use to replace them. I want to explain this a little bit here before we dive in. If, if we look in history, uh, the doctrine of sin, that all of us are utterly helpless rebels together on equal footing before God, no matter your race or job or socioeconomic class or education level or political group, that all of us are not only full of sin, but also liable to God's judgment, these doctrines led to our very ideas of universal human equality and universal human dignity that we take for granted, uh, but the rest of history and the rest of the world certainly does not take for granted. That the king and the beggar would be equals before God and others. Accountable on the same level. That no group or country is inherently better than another. This belief actually created uh, universal democracy as we know it. Political historian uh, Eugen Rosenstock Hussey uh, notes that the first universal democracy was the democracy of sinners, united by their common confession of sins and expectation of the last judgment. It was the church uh, in which the idea that every single person votes, no matter your class or race or amount of money. Um, universal democracy was started with people who uniquely knew the line between good and evil is not between one human race or group and another, it's not between the educated and the uneducated. The line between good and evil goes down the middle of every single one of us. Therefore, no one deserves ultimate power over others. These doctrines also led to other beneficial beliefs and practices in society. Uh, first, they led to our concept of humility, that we have a healthy suspicion of our own thinking and motives, even the anticipation of hypocrisy, egoism, and sin in our purest of motives. And it sets us up to respond to those things and others with both accountability and empathy. Accountability because God's judge, but also empathy because, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes, nothing I despise in my brother 
is entirely absent in myself. These doctrines led to our idea of vulnerability. Your neighbor does not have it together, just like you. Therefore, you can share honestly with them and be received with empathy and grace. And these doctrines also led to our concept of real repentance. How good is it to hear when someone does you wrong, to not hear defensiveness or minimizing or self-righteousness, but rather, hey, I messed up. Not, not in a little way. I messed up big time. And not just because I hurt your feelings. I was wrong by a universal standard. I was wrong before God. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I need to change, fundamentally change. We don't hear that from a lot of celebrities and politicians these days since we have largely moved away from these doctrines as a culture. To sum all this up, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, the doctrine of sin is an obviously unattractive idea. But when you wait for its results, they are pathos and brotherhood, a thunder of laughter and pity. For only with sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. So as we go to these depths of sin and judgment together, I'm hoping to not hide or sugarcoat the doctrines or be ashamed of them, but to try to show how Romans 1 through 3 is part of the good news. It's part of the gospel of God, too. Sin and judgment, somehow, are part of the good news. At the very least, we will see the necessary preamble to the news actually being received by you. If you want to learn more about how these doctrines and other Christian doctrines I've let have kind of influenced society. This is a book uh, that's very helpful for me, Biblical Critical Theory, Christopher Watkin. Um, very good. Got a nice uh, <laughs> Jim giving a thumbs up over here. So, uh, yeah, very good book. Um, uh, be helpful to read. Also, uh, when we go through these harder topics for us and for our culture, even the, this passage today, I imagine they'll be tempting to think mainly in terms of how someone else might be hearing this in the room or someone else might hear this in your life. You might even uh, be on staff in here, or an elder or a deacon, and, and worried about the church. How are these full doctrines going to be received by this person or that person? It's good to be concerned about the church, um, but I just want to name what, what Satan wants most in any sermon, is for you to think about it primarily in terms of someone else. And to forget this is God's word for you and your soul right now. What he wants you to forget is that this is your moment before God and his word. They are responsible for them, but you are responsible for you. So I would ask to let this passage in this sermon first be for you today and not someone else, and later you can think about them. So today we're going to talk about the wrath of God revealed towards the sin of the Gentiles. Uh, Non-Jewish people, which by the way, is the vast majority of us in this room. Uh, today we will see three things regarding the wrath of God towards the sin of the Gentiles. First, and I actually forgot to do the slides this week. I apologize for that. Next, next time we'll have slides, hopefully. Uh, the justice in it, the first thing, the wrath of God towards the sin of the Gentiles, the justice in it. Why is God's wrath just or right for the Gentiles who didn't have Scripture or the law? Second, the manifestation of it. How is God's wrath showing up for them? What does it look like? And then third, the depths of it. How bad is it all, the sin and wrath? So the justice in it, the manifestation of it, and the depths of God's wrath. So before we go into this, uh, let's pray. We certainly need it today. Um, open our hearts, Father, fully to your word uh, for us, even these words. We confess that we don't want much of this to be true. 
uh, like Paul says, we, we want to suppress this. Would you be honest with us still? Take us to the real depths of our condition. And please, Jesus, do not leave us there. Lead us to the good news even today and bring us back up in your arms. Amen. So first, uh, the wrath of God towards sin, uh, the justice in that wrath. So look at verse 18 in your worship God. For the wrath of God is revealed, uh, revealed meaning manifesting now in history. Notice that God's wrath is present tense. It's not something that's coming later. It's something that's already here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we'll note some things about sin as we go. What is sin? And first, uh, this is saying sin is truth suppression. Truth suppression. Uh, how? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul here is addressing the question, why is it just that God's wrath is revealed to the Gentiles? Because unlike the, the nation of Israel, the Jews, the Gentiles didn't have God's uh, words, his revelation of himself in the Old Testament. They didn't have this special long history with God uh, where God spoke to them and pleaded with them. They didn't have the written law from God, so many wondered, don't they have pretty good excuses for not experiencing God's wrath, namely that they didn't know about it, any of it. We ask the same question today. Uh, it's the question of the person on the island. What about the people uh, that never got to hear the gospel? How is it fair that they experience God's wrath? Well, uh, Jesus through Paul is telling us here. And the answer is the theological doctrine of general revelation. General revelation. We talked about this in the Proverbs series, that wisdom cries out in the streets, not just from God's word, but also from God's creation and his providence. Providence meaning how God rules the world. General revelation says this. It's like God's like an artist. You're living inside of and in close quarters to millions and billions of his paintings. His sculptures are all around you. And those tell you tons of truth about who God is and what he values. Also, God's like a writer, and you're living inside his story. His story tells much about who God is. And we can learn a lot from general revelation. Uh, it's an incredible gift. And the wise, the proverb said, pay close attention to it. But it also comes with a huge catch. The catch is, Paul says, for the, for the sinner, that this revelation from God is more than enough to leave us without excuse for our sin. Because we live in a place filled with the knowledge of God, we are accountable for that knowledge and accountable for the fact that we suppress it daily. Later in chapter 2, Paul's going to go further and say it's not just God's creation out there that leaves us without excuse, but it's also God's creation in here, in my heart, that holds us accountable because God's law is written on our hearts. He says, our consciences also bear witness and our conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse our sin. So whenever you do an action, uh, you have a little voice or feeling that tells you this is right, this is wrong. And we suppress that voice, we silence it, we numb it, we change it, we explain it away. And this was actually bearing witness to God's law being written on our hearts. So all this leaves us without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So honoring God and thanksgiving would be the right responses uh, to us being given the gift of life. 
living in someone's world they made for us, story they wrote for us, having our atoms held together every day, but we didn't honor him or give thanks to him. But instead, they became futile in their thinking, Paul says. This is a huge statement for us. Uh, Futile in their thinking means that our reason has become foundationally broken. The goal of our reason was to help us know God, but because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, we explain things away, our reason itself has fallen. Do you know how hopeless this statement makes us? It means tragically that we cannot trust our very selves, our own reasoning, because sin is in there. You see it in in others all the time. Uh, People can come up with reasons to do all sorts of ridiculous, wicked things. Reasons to be racist, reasons to commit genocide, reasons to systematically oppress people. Hamas had a lot of reasons for their terrible attack. Israel had a lot of reasons for their over-response and horrific human rights violations. Reasons in their heads for utter brutality and evil. Their reason is fallen. We see it out there, but it happens no less in here. As you too, every day, reason your way into so many sinful actions. This means wise Christians have a healthy distrust of their reasonings. Their reason is not their final authority. And tragically, it's not just our reason that's broken. Paul goes further in verse 21. He says that their foolish hearts were darkened. So heart for us means our emotions. Uh, But in the Bible, it's the central, deepest part of you that rules everything you think and feel and do. So it's your reasons, emotions, and will all in one place. The most foundational part of you has become darkened, he says. It's black in there. The lights are shut off. This is devastating because it means you cannot fully trust not just your reasons, but also your feelings and your will. Therefore, yourself. You are no longer functioning properly because there's sin deep in there. There's darkness in there. This kind of thinking is all over the Bible. Uh, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17-9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this sickness, this darkness, leads to verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we saw that all sin was true suppression, but also now we're seeing all sin is an exchange. It's an exchange, a trade we make, trading God himself for a created thing we are putting in his place. It's easy to see this exchange concept in Old Testament idolatry. Uh, We're going to trade God for his creation and worship this golden calf, or the sun and moon instead of God. The sun God will take care of us, give us a harvest, provide for us, we'll make sacrifices to him, and serve him. The exchange between God and a created thing is clear for us there, but the exchange is no less present um, for us now, and idolatry is no less present in our hearts. You don't have a sun God. Uh, But you do have, for example, your money, in which many of us look to as God and say, provide for me, protect me, give me security, give me status. I will sacrifice to you and serve you and wake up early every day and follow you and build an altar to you in my closet. Be my God, I will be your servant. Money is a very common idol for us. 
which is why Jesus talks about it so much. We trade God for it. Our jobs can be an idol. Our families, romantic love, pleasure. So many created things can become idols for us when we try to get from them what only God can and wants to give to us. And God sees this as a very personal exchange. He sees it as a betrayal. And this is crucial because when we ask the question, is God's wrath just, oftentimes we think about it mainly as violating a law. What's the big deal? And Jesus is saying here through Paul that it's exchanging God away. It's betraying a person. In fact, it's most often described in the Bible as spiritual adultery, exchanging and betraying of a spouse. So I want to paint the full scenario that Paul is describing for us. Is God's wrath justified? Imagine you're married to a spouse who loves you deeply. Your spouse has provided a home for you, a mansion. He built and designed it himself. It's beautiful. This is God's creation. There are pictures all over the walls of him and you and your family. He provides meals for you every day. He does life with you. Your story is his story. Everything you run across reminds you of him. This is general revelation. And he put a ring on your finger to remind you of his love. And, and more than that, found a way to write his vows on your heart. He tattooed them on your body. And he is daily offering you everything you'd ever want or need in a relationship. Deep intimacy, fellowship, love. He's a perfect spouse in every way. But despite all this, every day you take his vows and your vows and you drag them through the mud. You invite others, many others, into the house and commit adultery in his very presence. You exchange your husband who loves you for all sorts of lesser lovers. And in your heart of hearts, you're using your husband only for his money, the stuff he gives you. You exchange him for the stuff. You only talk to him whenever you need something from him. And when he confronts you with it, uh, you suppress the truth. You don't own it. You reason your way out of it every time. And Paul is asking, is that husband right to be angry? This is the Gentile situation before God. It's our situation. And Paul is saying, yes, because it's not just breaking a law. It's betraying a person. And the wrath itself shows the depth of the love and the hurt that's involved in the betrayal. And that picture I just gave you is far from accurate because it's not just a human spouse that you have violated. It's God, the king of the universe. It's one thing for you to step on an ant. Uh, you may not feel much too bad about that. It's another thing when you run over a squirrel. It might feel a little more weighty on your heart. It's a much bigger thing to run over a human being. But now can you imagine the weight of betraying the God of the universe, not accidentally, but intentionally? Because there's a much bigger gap between you and him than you and the squirrel. Us and the ant and the squirrel are all creatures, similar in a lot of ways, actually. But God is totally different from us. Higher kind from all of us down here. He's God and creator. So all of this, Paul is saying, is, leaves us without excuse. God's wrath is just, and this is true for any human being, whether we live on an island or hear the gospel or not. And as you're about to see, God's wrath is him giving us up completely to our idolatry, to us exchanging him for a created thing. He says, fine, live with your choice. Hell is like that too. Fine, live with it and not me. And it's true, as we will see with the Jews, that we are judged stricter as we come into contact with, with Scripture, God's special revelation. Uh, and as the preaching of the gospel on top of the general revelation, uh, we become even more accountable 
But even without all that, everyone's without excuse. So let me pause here. How's everybody doing? You may still feel, uh, I don't really totally agree with this wrath, or I wrestle with this. And notice that God's inviting you into that wrestling graciously, which is why he's here talking about it. He assumes you're questioning it. And I want to suggest for you that if this passage is true, that our own reason and emotions and will need a lot of work. So there are many places where you and I won't agree with God. And this may be one of those places for you. And I want to invite you into that wrestling, and I'd love to talk more about it with you. And perhaps growth over the next five weeks will be in realizing the justice and God's wrath for you and all of us, which really often involves us growing a lot more serious about our sin. So that's the, the first point, uh, God's wrath for the sin of the Gentiles, the justice in it. Second, uh, the manifestations, manifestation of it. How does uh, God's wrath show up? What does it look like in the world? So look in verse 24 here. Um, Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. This is uh, perfect justice for a persistent exchange. Fine, you traded me for these things. You can have them and not me. Experience the consequences of that for yourself. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is a reference back to them refusing to give God honor. Therefore, again, perfect justice. God gives them up to dishonor in themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up again to dishonorable passions, meaning in the Greek, uh, illicit sexual desires. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So because they had exchanged God for idols, here's the logic, is God gave them up to exchanges that resulted from that. In this case, exchanging God's created purposes for something he gave us, sexuality, for something more perverse, something less than that gift. The word nature in Greek in early Jewish literature especially uh, means the natural law, uh, God's created purposes for the world. They exchange God's creative intent for something contrary to it, something that foundationally twisted it. Verse 27, and, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now the last part, receiving in themselves the penalty, is the key to understanding the verse. It's pointing out how the perversion that takes place in the person as a result of sin, is the wrath revealed. The perversion that takes place in the person as a result of sin is the wrath revealed. They exchanged God for created things. They dishonored him. Therefore, he gave them up to be dishonored in their bodies. He gave them up to their exchange such that they were sexually exchanged with one another. They wanted their ways instead of his ways. He said, okay, have them. And they were corrupted by that dishonored, exchanged in their bodies. The destructive effects of sin for a person are the wrath that's being revealed. What Paul is doing in this section is using one example that would have been easy for them to see and understand of how God's wrath was manifesting, teasing out how it works regarding a specific area of life so that they can make sense of how it's showing up similarly in every other sin he's about to mention that might be harder for them to see it in. 
Verse 29 is a huge list of things working just this way, just as perverse, just as shameful, just as sad. And this is not saying sexual perversion or homosexuality in his day is the worst of all these things. Sexual brokenness is an example that is meant to show how every other sin is working just like it. Now these verses uh, are at the center of a huge debate on the question, is homosexuality as we understand it today a sin? Is homosexual lustings versus homosexual acts versus homosexual committed marriage sinful? What about each of those? And, and you might be in here right now and be same-sex attracted or LGBTQ and wonder, what is Jesus saying to me right now through Romans and his apostle Paul? I already have a lot of shame in this area. It doesn't sound good. What does God or this church even think of me? And I know many of you have someone you love dearly who is same-sex attracted, a sibling, a child. And this passage has big ramifications for them and for you. So I want to take a few minutes to address that. Though homosexuality is not the main point of this passage, but largely because we're all concerned about those who have that hard experience of life. I want to take a few minutes to show how Romans and Jesus actually foundationally challenge the two major sides that you might come across in this debate. So one big trend that those who study culture have noticed in the West is that our Western society was originally very influenced by Christianity, uh, by Jesus and his principles and his virtues, but has since lost connection with that foundation. And when that happened, that those virtues that all once logically cohered together in Jesus have been separated from one another and are prepackaged individually and sold to you. Lost my place, hang on a second. Um, uh, okay, here we are, here we are. But the problem is, uh, when you isolate a virtue from the others, um, the virtues become much less of what they should be. Uh, this debate surrounding homosexuality has this exact dynamic to it. So I'm about to give you some generalizations, so just understand that I don't have the time I'd like to totally nuance everything. But some folks on the right side of this debate you might encounter oftentimes will package to you honesty without compassion. Okay? They might say, um, this deep, ashamed part of you is sinful. That's all you need to know. End of story. Have a good day. And you are left with a deep wound, bleeding out, no bandages, no hospital, no compassion, no hope. It's understandable that people reject that. Paul here in Romans cuts that he might heal. He is more honest than the right because he starts with God's gospel last week. The good news, the righteousness revealed for hopeless sinners. And then, yes, brutal honesty for three chapters on sin, a deep cut. And then redemption for 12 more chapters, binding up that cut for us. The right is often not honest enough because the deepest truth of the world in Jesus is compassionate and hopeful. It's not just said. So an, an LGBTQ couple uh, in St. Louis living together, not Christians, uh, started visiting one of my seminary professor's churches that he was pastoring, and they were welcomed into the community. Uh, they grew to love the church. They were seekers trying to learn about God. And after about a year of being there, they sat down with the pastor and asked, um, we have to know does God consider our homosexuality, our relationship, a sin? And my professor, wanting to be fully honest with them, said this. That's not the most important question for you right now. Because first, what matters is what you two are going to decide to do with Jesus. With God's gospel and his offer to you. 
If you choose to accept him and his gospel and his promises, your whole life is going to be very different. Every part will come under his lordship, including your sexuality. Your life will be like carrying a cross, sexuality included, but it will be so worth it. But if you don't accept him and don't follow him, the question really won't matter too much for you. He would view most things that you might do as sinful, honestly. So I would ask, first decide what you're going to do with Jesus and his offer for you. Then if you decide to follow him with your life, we can talk about all kinds of things that he's going to teach you about, including sexuality. This pastor, I would argue, is more truthful than the right often is about the full situation of that couple before God. Second, uh, Jesus is more compassionate than the left. The left often wants to give you compassion without honesty. This is a quote from a college student I heard one time. Um, If changing our views and language surrounding sexuality makes them happier, what's the harm? The student is sharing the virtue of compassion without honesty. What's the harm? And the harm is, if the truth he is willing to bend on is a real and vitally important truth for someone, which, by the way, is what sin is in the Bible, then bending on it is very dangerous for the person we are speaking to, and therefore not compassionate at all. It's like uh, this student was a home inspector. Many of you guys own homes, had a home inspector. He comes into your life, looks around, sees all kinds of foundation issues, cracks, water leakage, the sin in your life, and thinks... I want this person to be happy with his potential new home. I don't want him to feel bad. So I'm going to change my views and language around those problems with the house. Actually, I can spin it positively for him. This crack is intentional. It's part of the decor. It's all going to be great for you. Now, if those cracks are real cracks, violations of divine law that manifest God's wrath, and if left there will lead to the house crumbling on you, taking your life and soul, Is that a compassionate home inspector to spin that for you positively? We would say he's not compassionate enough, to be honest with you. Jesus is more honest than the right because he's compassionate, and he's more compassionate than the left because he's honest. Here's the message of Romans from Jesus, your home inspector. He comes in, uh, sees the damage, and says, listen, you're going to need to sit down for this. Here are the cracks, the issues, all of it. They are much bigger and more pervasive than you thought. Some that you caused. Many that you were born with. Many that came about because of a broken world. And I know that's a heart blow. He's honest, unlike the left. But unlike the right, he doesn't stop there. He says, in fact, this house of yours is not livable. If you stay here, you will die. It needs to be brought down. The studs, foundation, all of it demolished. But I have paid in full already to build a new one for you, a mansion in its place. And if you say yes, that process over the rest of your life is going to be painful and very difficult. You're going to live in a tent in the front yard, which is going to be a mud pit. Often you're not going to get what you want or feel you need. Even the deepest desires you have will have to wait until heaven. But I will never leave you alone. And when I'm done, you will live in that new house with me for eternity. It will be worth it. Will you go on that journey with me? That's Jesus' honesty and compassion together. I hope we can see in Jesus that he doesn't fit either of those two categories because in our passage, though hard, it's sandwiched in compassion, the good news. So let me repeat again. Um, This is not saying that homosexuality is worse than any other sin in the following list we're about to look at. 
In fact, homosexuality of the Gentiles here is about to be used to confront the Jews who look down on that. How, on how their hearts and actions, they, they harbor the same perverseness so that no sinner can judge. Because all of us have these tendencies in ourselves, sexual brokenness. So if you are in here and same-sex attracted or LGBTQ, if you've been singled out as worse than others by the church, that is not true. I'm so sorry. The whole point of this section is to show that we are equally helpless before God. We have all been foundationally broken, including sexually, and this means the gospel and Jesus in this community is for you in fullness too. You are equal here. I hope you know that, and that is true for you and for those you love. So in terms of the specific debate surrounding the question, are homosexual lustings, acts, committed homosexual marriage, are they sinful? This passage, we believe, is saying plainly by nature, yes. These things are a violation of God's created intent and therefore not God's best for us. Though that's far from the most important takeaway in this passage. I know that may have huge ramifications for your life or for those you love. I know also there are many other interpretations that have arisen more recently of this passage. Interpretations that want to uh, agree that this passage is authoritative and coming from Jesus, but want to show that the homosexuality that's being referred to is not the same as what we have today. And for those wrestling with that question, um, I know many of us are, uh, in the lobby we put some articles you can read that summarizes why we still hold the position we do even despite those newer interpretations. It's a Gospel Coalition article from Kevin DeYoung. It actually quotes a ton of LGBTQ scholars on sexuality in the first century. And it's a very helpful short summary of those positions and why we hold ours. Um, and please meet with me, with us, as you wrestle with this, because we are here to compassionately and honestly walk alongside of you as you wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus and submit your life to him. And I know for, for others of you, this could be the first time hearing our church's position on this. And this could be jarring for you. It could be sad for you. It could make you angry or confused. And if this is you, uh, we also want to talk about this with you and process with you this week. Um, this is an okay place to wrestle with each other and, and each other's views. And please do that with us, uh, with myself and Michael and others. I could probably speak for all of us. This is not a doctrine that is easy for us to hold. Um, it's not one we major on or that we want to talk about every Sunday. Uh, but we are striving to be like Jesus here, to care enough about all of you to be honest, and to be honest enough with you all to care, to give you the full good news uh, every week, which includes, but is not only, the sin part. All right. In your mind, so pause here, uh, please take this hot topic and put it in a box up on the shelf for now, Okay. And then take down again a much bigger box, the much more important doctrine that we need to finish here, which is the manifestation of God's wrath in the whole rest of your life. This is far more than just our broken sexuality. And so if you can, let's transition back to finish this passage. Verse 28 here. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. As, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the manifestation of God's wrath, what it looks like. 
that same pattern we just saw in sexuality happening with all this. Meaning we exchange God for idols, therefore God gave us up to them, to all sorts of unrighteousness, and then we receive in those areas the perverseness and suffering of each of those. The unfulfilled pining of envy, the volatile danger and hurt of strife, the overwhelming stress of deceit, the, other, the utter isolation of arrogance. Looking for fulfillment in something that isn't God, uh, God gave us up to not finding it. You made your own bed, lie in it, God says. Someone said that the terrible history of the world is God's wrath. So why does God do this? Uh, first, we saw it's just. Um, second, God hopes that we might hit rock bottom and turn like the prodigal son. So that's the, the second point, the manifestation of God's wrath. Third point, briefly, um, the depths of the sin of wrath of the Gentile, the sin and wrath of the Gentiles, uh, was summarized here in verse 32, one verse that switches, uh, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This, for a, an early Jew, is a big shift because it means we go from fools to scoffers as God's wrath is revealed. Remember from the Proverbs series, a fool is someone who falls into sin. He doesn't totally know what he's doing, but the scoffer is someone who knows what is bad, plans it out, and then invites others into it, carries it out. Paul is saying that we've all become the scoffer, meaning an intentional sinner, approving of those who practice sin, though we know in our hearts with God's law written on them what that sin really deserves, which is death. So to summarize all this, God's wrath has been revealed on our sin, the Gentiles. It's just because we know too much. It looks like God giving us over. Fine, live with your created things instead of me. And the corruption that comes on you is the wrath. And lastly, the depths of it all is that we become scoffers intentionally evil. Now to conclude, uh, I'd like to come back to why Jesus might take us through these kinds of depths for five weeks. How is this part of God's gospel, the good news? I wonder, have you realized why that is yet? Why is it important for you to see your exact sinfulness when hearing the good news? So imagine, uh, from, like from the sermon last week if you were there, imagine you're in a, a concentration camp. You're chained up in thick chains. You're isolated. You're malnourished. You've been lied to over and over again by the father of lies who is your master. And you are there because you hurt the person you love the most, the king on the other side. You betrayed him, left him for lesser lovers, till finally he's like, okay, go, I give you up. And you went. And then you became enslaved in this place. And the messenger from Jesus shows up to get you and he says, hey, Jesus did it. He beat Satan. He's coming to rescue you. He will break your chains and get you out of here, forgive you fully. You can live with him. All you have to do is collapse onto him. Are you ready? But the messenger notices the prisoner's eyes have been sealed shut because of the lies. The prisoner says, wait, what? My situation isn't that bad here. I chose this life. I'm proud of this life. I don't need to get out of here. These aren't chains. These are jewelry. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. With my reason, I don't see how the other side is much better than this side. How do I know you guys aren't the bad guys over there on that side? Plus, with my will, I could get out of here whenever I want. I just have to try harder. Decide to get out, and I'm out. On top of that, I really just don't feel good about your message. It doesn't feel good based on what I've seen around here. Um, plus, I have plenty of other gods I can rely on. 
who might look to you like a created thing or a golden calf, but they promise to get me out, and they will. Also, I shouldn't really need forgiveness from God because he's not really mad about any of this. He shouldn't be. It's my life. This is a person who the Holy Spirit has not yet taken through Romans 1 through 3. Is therefore not prepared at all for the good news. Who doesn't see the true nature of the situation and therefore is not to the point of faith. A person who will not collapse onto Jesus. And this is not just those who aren't Christians who struggle with this blindness. It's also us who are Christians. Though we've been freed from the power of sin, uh, freed, we are not freed yet from its presence. And we have this exact same struggle every time we sin. We suppress the truth, exchange God for something created, and say no to trusting in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is going to take you to the depths so that when the good news of the gospel shows up hard in five weeks, it will meet a group of prisoners whose eyes have been pried open by the power of the Spirit. Who look around at the horrors of not just our situation, but also the horrors of ourselves. And are soaked with tears and utterly desperate. When the good news of the gospel, the sinless God-man enters in. When the only man with a heart with the lights turned on, shining brightly. When he steps in with compassion in his eyes, with holes in his hands and feet, the price he paid for our release from this hell. We, with our eyes open, will be able to see him for exactly who he is. And our tears will be wiped away by his hand. Amen.